Good morning, church. Welcome to Desert Hills Baptist Church. We are so excited to have you today. We're excited to start a new series today uh, on the letter to the Ephesians in the book of Ephesians. But before we get to the book of Ephesians, this week we're going to start and find out how, how the church began in the book of Acts. So if you have your Bibles, you can take them and turn with me to Acts chapter 18. We'll be in Acts chapter 18 and 19 and so this morning I have a lot of information I'm trying to get uh, through to kind of lay the foundation for where the church of Ephesus started. And so I have a lot of information to set the table up for uh, the study into the epistle to the Ephesians uh, over the next few weeks. Now, uh, the message is entitled today, The Transformational Church. Now, transformation is not naturally occurring unless we're speaking of deterioration. In fact, the moment every one of us were born, we started to die. Just the facts. The moment, moment we were born, we started to die. There's a law in science called the law of entropy. That means everything is in a state of decline. And I know some of you guys feel like you're invincible. Some of you young people feel like you're invincible, but every one of us are in a state of decline. Now, transformation only occurs outside of deterioration by an outside agent. For example, this water bottle is filled with water. This water is water from our water fountain here in the lobby, and this water uh, in this water bottle can change if I put it under some heat. If I put this water bottle in the microwave and add some heat to it, this water will then change. It's still water, but it's hot water. I probably wouldn't want to drink from it. Now, I can also change the composition of this water. It's still going to be water. I can stick it in the freezer, but it's going to change. Now, I can drink from it right now, and I can enjoy the benefits of water, but if I put it under heat, it's going to be too hot for me. If I stick it in the freezer, it's going to be too cold because it'll be one block of ice. Now, I can add some protein powder to it, and then I have a protein shake. But it's not going to be the same as this water. It will transform. The same thing, back in my day, uh, when, when I was growing up, everybody was too poor to have pop, and so we had Kool-Aid. Remember Kool-Aid? Kool-Aid, Kool-Aid, tastes great. Got to have some. Can't wait. Am I the only one who remembers Kool-Aid? Who remembers Kool-Aid? All right, you remember Kool-Aid? But now you have every kind of flavor of soda that you want under the sun. And you don't hear much. Our kids have been deprived. I think the reason our culture has gone so bad is kids haven't drank Kool-Aid. Amen? <laughs> I'm being facetious. But I could add Kool-Aid to this, and it'll change and transform this water into a very cool drink. Amen? Now, heat, cold, protein, Kool-Aid will transform this water because they're outside agents. Now, I want you to understand that the gospel, the message of Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection is transformative in its nature. In fact, the Bible says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, if he is placed in Christ, if Christ is placed in him, if he is positionally justified, made righteous in the eyes of God, if he's received God's gift of eternal life for repenting of his sins and turning by faith to Jesus Christ and placed in Christ, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. In fact, if you do a word study, if you do an exegetical breakdown of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17, you understand there's this process we look at in nature called metamorphosis. So you get a caterpillar, and he's crawling around. He goes into a, co a cocoon, and when he comes out, he's no longer looking like that caterpillar he once was. He's transformed into a butterfly. And you see, anybody positionally in Jesus Christ changes. They're never the same. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. So the followers of Jesus took the gospel to Jerusalem. And it stayed in Jerusalem until Stephen was stoned, as we find recorded in the Word of God in Acts chapter 6 and 7. 
And then it was taken to Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. And the world changed. It changed so much so that the Roman empires bega emperors began to view Christianity as a threat. In fact, if you study history and you look at emperors like Diocletian and Caligula and uh, 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 Valerius and all of these guys, they, they looked at Christianity not as something that would benefit their empire and benefit their culture, but they looked at it as something that would threaten them and threaten their culture. In fact, so much so that uh, Nero set Rome on fire and he blamed it on the Christians. That's how despised Christianity was. So the darkness of the world was being invaded by light. And let me just say this, light, uh, darkness does not like the light. Now, the Jewish people early on were tasked by God to bring the light of the, uh, the gospel, the light of God, excuse me, and the coming Messiah to the people of the world, but they failed at their task. In fact, when Jesus was brought to, after eight days to the temple to be circumcised, the Bible says this, as Simeon finally got to see the Messiah, and he thought he would see the Messiah in his lifetime. Luke chapter 2, it says, For mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all the people, a light to lighten the Gentiles, and the glory of thy people Israel. The, the people of Israel were to spread the message of the coming Messiah all throughout the Old Testament period, but they failed miserably. They were to be a light to lighten the Gentiles. They were to spread the news of the light that was going to lighten the Gentiles, but they failed. The task was then passed on to Christians and churches, which began to be comprised of both Jews and Gentiles. Now, so unique was this union of Jews and Gentiles being in one body that Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 3 of this uh, wonderful mystery that Jews and Gentiles could be in one body and they could be the church and they could be the mystery that the Old Testament prophets didn't understand and they could really accomplish something on behalf of God and with the gospel, it says in Ephesians 3, and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ to the intent that now unto the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God. God's wisdom is displayed when a church is operating as Christ intended. God's wisdom is displayed when he can be, bring people from different backgrounds, from different socioeconomic groups from different uh, religious backgrounds, if you will, and save them and change them by the gospel and bring them together in one body and they can be in unity one with another. And so as we look at this transformative church, we understand the gospel went on to transform the world. It transformed Greece where Paul went on his second missionary journey, so much so that the Bible says of the churches of Macedonia that they were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia, which would comprise of all of Greece. And then it says, For from you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God were to spread abroad so that we need not speak anything. And, and it also transformed Asia Minor where Paul went on uh, the way back on his second missionary journey, and during his third missionary journey, so much so that the churches that were planted ended up taking the gospel throughout all that area of the world. It's said that from the starting of the church at Ephesus, the church of Aeropolis, the church at Laodicea, and the church of Colossae, which were also uh, located in Asia Minor, also started. And here's what the Bible says in Acts chapter 19 and verse 10. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Imagine to be a church that had such influence that the gospel literally spread out from your church to your whole region of the world. Imagine that. Imagine if our church had the influence to be, get the gospel to not just Buckeye, but Goodyear and Avondale and Surprise and Waddell 
and Tonopah and, and literally all of Arizona. Imagine that. That's the type of influence that was taking place when the gospel was transforming here, as we'll speak about in our text. So as we begin our study this morning on the transformational church, we start with some background. And we understand in Acts chapter 16, Paul's heart's desire was to go to Asia. I mean, he wanted to go to Asia first, and most likely he wanted to go to the city of Ephesus, which was the capital of the region, but the Holy Spirit did not allow him to go. He then turned his sights on Bithynia, as you read in Acts chapter 16, but the Bible says the Spirit suffered him not. The Spirit, Holy Spirit didn't allow him to go. God had plans for Paul to go to Macedonia first to build a forward operating base between his homeland and the rest of the world. If you put that slide back up here for just a second, you see... Uh, Paul would have been from uh, Antioch, Tarsus. Uh, Jerusalem is just to the south of that, over here to my far right. You can see uh, Greece right there, Corinth, and there's Thessalonica and Berea. And so Paul was able to go first west so that he could come back and go east. And then everything in between was being enclosed and reached with the gospel. Later on, Paul went to Rome, which was to the west of Thessalonica and Berea. But God allowed that to take place, I believe, to be a, a forward operating base for the gospel. Now, the church at Philippi, and then Thessalonica, and then Berea, and then an attempt was made to start a church at Athens, and then Corinth, and finally, towards the end of his second missionary journey, here's what the Bible says in Acts chapter 18 and verse 19. Acts 18, 19, it says, And he came to Ephesus... And left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they desired him to tarry a longer time with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. So most people believe that Paul started the church at Ephesus at the end of his second missionary journey. And, and then we come to the city of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was the second largest city in the Roman Empire. Think about this. In the first century, you have a city of 250,000 people. Now, I think about that, and I think, how did they take care of their trash? How did they deal with sewage? How did they get their water? I mean, we live in Arizona, and water's important. If we don't have a way to get water, we're in pretty bad shape because it's not like we're going to go dig a 10-foot hole in the ground and get water. Growing up in Michigan, I'd dig a 10-foot hole in the ground, and there'd be water there. I don't know if it'd be safe for drinking, but if I'd boil it, it would be. Here in Arizona, I could dig and 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 100, 200, 300, maybe 350 feet, I'd probably catch some water. Not sure if it's good enough for drinking, but that's about where I'd get it. How did they get water? I mean, how did they deal with crime? I mean, you think about these things. I don't know if you think about those things. I think about those things. 250,000 people in probably an area smaller than 20 square miles. Probably even less than that. But it was the second largest city in the Roman Empire. It was the capital of Asia Minor. It was situated on the Keister River within reach of the Mediterranean Sea. It was the economic, it was the social, and it was the cultural center of the world in that area during the time of Paul. It was home of one of the seven wonders of the world, the Temple of Artemis or the Temple of Diana. Now, um, this, if you've ever seen pictures of the Acropolis, this building was four times bigger than the Acropolis in Greece. Think about that, four times bigger. The Temple of Diana acted as uh, the place where they would bring their art from around the world, that area of the world. It was their art gallery. It was a place that they would often exchange money and do their banking. It was a, a place of worship and all kinds of things happened here around the Temple of Diana. Now, the temple in ancient antiquity was home of, uh, of, of the, the goddess Artemis. Now, here's a picture of Artemis. Supposedly, 
a meteor fell from the sky. And when this meteor fell from the sky, they, it looked like the, what they assumed was the goddess Artemis, and they fashioned it to look like this terrible image that you see on the screen, but that is what they would uh, worship. It, uh, she was the goddess of, of keeping women through childbirth, the protector of women, and uh, she was very important in Greek culture at the time. And it also was, the city of Ephesus was a stronghold of Satan. If you wanted to find anything about occultism or necromancy or temple prostitution or fortune tellers or any darkness imaginable, it could be found, it could be found at the city of Ephesus. Now, the church at Ephesus was started, as I mentioned, during the end of Paul's second missionary journey. It says, and it came to pass in verse 1 of chapter 19 that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus, and finding certain disciples, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since he believed? And they said unto him, We have not so much as heard as if there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto them, Unto what were you baptized? And they said unto him, John's baptism. And then said Paul, uh, John verily baptized you with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him which should come after him, that is Christ. And when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So as we pick up in chapter 19, this is the third missionary journey. He gets in Ephesus. There are some people that have believed that uh, uh, Jesus is the Messiah. They've not heard of the Holy Ghost. They've not been indwelt by the Holy Ghost. And as we talked about last week, during the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit came upon the people in transitional ways. We talked about five different ways the Holy Spirit came upon people. And then when he came and entered into Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, uh, he came into Gentiles and indwelt Gentiles when they believed. And we talked about that, Ephesians 1.13. When we believe today, we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God. Well, these people, they believed that Jesus was the Messiah. They had a, a, a glint of the truth, and Paul explained unto them the Word of God more perfectly. You see, under, and need to understand this, that when John came, John was preparing the way for the Messiah. John preached to the children of Israel that they needed to repent. They needed to repent because of the fact that they were trusting in their works and they were trusting in their deeds and they were trusting in their goodness and they were trusting in the fact that they were keeping the law uh, to make them righteous in the eyes of God. And when John came along, he wanted them to understand you cannot make yourself righteous enough. The only one that's going to save you is the Messiah. That's what you need to look to. And so some people, when they were baptized during the time of John, they, they allowed themselves to be baptized. It was a baptism of repentance that they were believing that the Messiah was the only one that could save them and not their work. So some of these people had that knowledge, but they didn't understand the whole picture. And so Paul comes to, to this area, and the church goes on to be one of the strongest churches of the New Testament era. Uh, and even though it was located physically in a stronghold of Satan, the light of the gospel shined brightly from it, so much so that the Bible says that in the space of two years, all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Now, most scholars believe, as we think about the ministry at Ephesus, Paul stayed at Ephesus for three and a half years. Now, think about that. He was longer in Ephesus than he was any other place during his missionary journeys. Three and a half years is a long time. Now, it's not an eternity, but when you're a missionary church planner like Paul, three and a half years is a really long time. The Bible says in Acts chapter 17 that he was in, he reasoned with them in the synagogue uh, three Sabbath days. Now, I don't believe that Paul was only in Thessalonica for, for a month, but I believe he probably wasn't there a great long time. And there was a church started at Thessalonica that was a, a wonderful church, a deep doctrinal church, a church that was self-reproducing and so on. But here Paul was at Ephesus for three and a half years. Think about that. And while he was there, the Bible goes on to say this in verse 8. He went into the synagogue and spake boldly for the space of three months in the synagogue, disputing and persuading things concerning the kingdom of God. 
But when the divers were hardened and believed not, but spake evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them and separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrrhenius. So there was this hall uh, that was named the Hall of Tyrrhenius. Paul rented out the Hall of Tyrrhenius. And so those uh, Jews that were interested that Paul had met in the synagogue, some of them came to the, the school of Tyrrhenius or the hall of Tyrrhenius. And then Gentiles, those that were interested, they came to the hall of Tyrrhenius. And Paul was able to basically have church with them for, for a couple of years. And this continued by the space of two years so that all that dwelt in Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. Then God allowed the ministry of Paul to be authenticated with significant miracles. The Bible says, and God wrought special miracles by the hands of Paul. So that from his body were brought unto the sick handkerchiefs or aprons. Now, what we think of when we think of handkerchiefs is we think of something we keep in our pocket, maybe to blow our nose. But the handkerchiefs and aprons the Bible are talking about are like sweat towels. They took their sweat towels that they would have with them in the workplace. And as they're working, as they're doing their manual labor, or working uh, in whatever job or occupation they had, they had these towels that they would use to wipe the sweat so they could go about and do their work. Well, they took these sweat towels, and, and there's Paul. They would take their sweat towels and touch Paul, and then they would take that towel and touch somebody else that was sick, and things would happen. And by the way, the Bible never promises uh, uh, apol apostolic succession of aprons and handkerchiefs, all right? <laughs> I remember growing up, I heard a faith healer. Uh, he was advertising if you, uh, uh, for a generous donation of, of $29.99, <laughs> you will get this handkerchief that I have prayed over and I've touched and, and you'll have special healing as a result of this. Just $29.99, I send a generous donation of $29.99. I wonder how many people fell for that. It was different. God allowed some wonderful things to happen. The Bible says so that when people touched these things, diseases departed from them and evil spirits went out of them. And then a group of traveling Jewish exorcists wanted to get in on what God was doing through the ministry of Paul. And the Bible goes on to say in Acts chapter 19 and verse 13, then certain of the vagabond Jews, exorcists. Yes, you heard that right, exorcists. These were people that would uh, uh, have the ability, supposedly, to, to lay hands on someone that had an a, a unclean spirit. They were demon-possessed, and as they laid hands on them, the demon would depart. They took upon them to call over them, which had evil spirits, the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, We adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preacheth, and there were seven sons, one of Sceva, a Jew, and chief of the priests, which did so. And the evil spirit answered and said, imagine this, you are supposed to be these well-known uh, uh, people that have a, a reputation for being able to exercise demons, and, and you come in the name of not uh, uh, God, as they were probably coming before, but you come in the name of Jesus, whom Paul's preaching, not of whom they were preaching, and you say, okay, demon, come out of that man. And then the demon responds this way, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? Imagine what that would do for your reputation. Imagine that would do, what, what that would do to your pride. And notice what the Bible says, And the man in whom the evil spirit was leapt on them and overcame them and prevailed against them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. When you pretend to be something you're not, you're going to end up naked and wounded. Amen. <laughs> Now, this was known by everyone throughout this part of the world. And the people were in awe of the true and living God, and Jesus was glorified. Here's what the Bible says in Acts chapter 19, verse 17. And this was known to all the Jews and the Greeks dwelling at Ephesus, and fear fell on them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. Now, not only that, but many of the people who believed realized they were still holding on to sinful philosophies and sinful deeds and sinful memorabilia, and they confessed them, and they repented of them, and they gave up their sinful possessions. And here's what the Bible says in Acts chapter 19, verse 18. 
And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. And many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. I tried to figure out what that would equate to in our modern day, you know, understanding. And I couldn't get a, a, a real... Uh, uh, understanding of what this, because it could have been a shekel, it could have been a drachma, it could have been any other form of currency, but nonetheless, it was thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in our current economy. Now, the end result was, verse 20, so mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. Now, later on, the silversmiths union, union local 666, got upset. Because so many people received the gospel and changed, they were no longer visiting the temple of Diana and buying their silver souvenirs. Now remember, uh, Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world akin to visiting the pyramids of Egypt, akin to visiting Jerusalem, akin to people no longer going to Disney World. Seriously, I was trying to think of what are the seven wonders of the world today. And I kept coming back to Disney World. <laughs> I mean, some of the more popular places people visit. In fact, if you were to Google most popular places in the world people visit, I'm sure Disney World would come up in the top seven. So here's what happens. And the same time there arose no small stir about that way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith which made silver shrines for Diana, uh, brought no small gain unto the craftsmen, whom he called together with the workmen of like occupation and said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, ye seem here that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which be made with hands. In fact, you see in his letter to the Corinthians that he talks to the Corinthians that a idol, a, a idol or a shrine or a, a little souvenir, as they're talking about, is nothing but a piece of metal or wood. Idols are nothing. To a Jew, an idol was nothing because God does not dwell in things made with hands. And so Paul literally was preaching that. So not only so that this, our craft is in danger, the Bible goes on to say, but to be set at naught, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. So what can we learn as we've taken a few moments to look at this church and the beginnings of this church? Now, a couple of takeaways. First of all, you thought it was going to be a long message when I said I'm going to lay the table, set the table. You, you, I saw some of you thinking, oh no, it's going to be a long one today. Well, I'm not done. <laughs> First thing, takeaway, God is always at work in people's lives. Take advantage of the opportunities God gives you as you cross their paths. So, in Acts chapter 18, the Bible says, And Paul, after this, he tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren, and sailed thence into Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila, having shorn his head in, in Centria, for he had a vow. And he came to Ephesus, and he left them there, speaking of Aquila and Priscilla, he left them in Ephesus, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they desired him to tarry with them, uh, he consented not, but he bade them farewell, saying, I must by all means keep this feast that cometh in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you, if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. Now, as a result of this short ministry, a church was started. As a result of this short time, a church was started. Had not Paul stopped at Ephesus and taken Aquila and Priscilla with him to carry on the work of the church, the church would have never taken root. And let me just say this. We don't always see what God is doing in the lives of people and in, in communities. We don't always see those things. I remember when I was in Rancho Cucamonga, we started a church there, Mountain View Baptist Church, and I, I would knock uh, doors trying to meet people. And I remember I went to this home of this man like three different times over a period of 10 years. The first time I met him, he told me he was an avowed atheist. 
The second time I met him, he was an agnostic. The third time I met him, he, he told me with, with glee and happiness in his voice and on his face, he had become a Christian. And I thought to myself the first time, he wanted to argue, he wanted to go on, he wanted me to see how smart he was, and he was going on and on and on. I'm gonna, uh, he had this attitude, I'm going to give it all to this country bumpkin preacher as he's coming to my door. And I let him talk, and then I would talk, and I let him talk, and he would talk, I would talk, and we went back and forth, and we had a good conversation. I said, I don't think we're going to get each other to see uh, the, the way that each other see things, but let me pray for you. If, are you okay with that? And he said, Sure. And I prayed for him. And I gave him a gospel pamphlet. And I went on my way. Next time he was glad to see me, but this time he was an agnostic. And we talked again, and he wasn't as uh, firmly planted in, in his atheistic thoughts that there isn't a God. He was beginning to realize that, that, that God could be real and, and probably was real, but he, he was maybe removed from society and from the inner workings of what goes on in our lives today. And, and then the third time, He'd gotten saved. Now, what happened between the first time and the last time I met this guy? The seeds of the gospel were planted. And it wasn't just me. He had a loving Christian wife who had been praying for him for years to come to Jesus Christ. Now, we don't always see what God is doing. We don't always see God at work, but God is always at work. Before we speak to someone, while we speak to someone, and long after we are gone, God even uses his own creation to get the attention of human beings. Here's what Romans says. It says, For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You can look at the complexity of creation and understand that, that order did not come from disorder, that uh, chaos did not beget life. And so you can talk to people and understand that they already realize that even creation testifies of the eternal power in Godhead so that man is without excuse. Now, we need to understand that we need to have gospel conversations on a consistent basis, planting the seeds of the Word of God and allowing God's Word to do its work. Why? Because God is always at work, and we need to take advantage of all of these opportunities to testify of him when God brings them up. Secondly, we need to look for opportunities to take others with us as we serve God. We need to look for opportunities to take others with us as we serve God. Now, in Acts chapter 18, as Paul came to Corinth, he discipled and enlisted a man by the name of Aquila and his wife Priscilla, who were also tent makers, to help in the ministry as well. Just as he had taken Barnabas and Luke and Mark with him on his first missionary journey, and Silas and Luke on his second missionary journey, and Timothy, he now had the opportunity to take Aquila and Priscilla with him to double his influence. And here's what Acts 18 says, And after these things, Paul departed from Athens and came to Corinth, and found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, lately come from Italy, with his wife Priscilla. And it says, And because he was of the same craft, he abode with them and wrought, for their occupation were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath day and persuaded the Jews and the Greek. Now, Jesus did this with his own disciples. He sent them two by two to sharpen them and encourage them. The Bible says in Mark chapter 6, he called on them unto the twelve, and he sent them forth two by two, and we have the special opportunity to take others with us as we serve God. Missionary, you're going to France. What a, what a blessing. I mean, to see that part of the world. You've been there before? You've been there before. You've probably seen the sights. You've seen the Eiffel Tower You've seen uh, all of the things that, that France has to offer, in, in a sense. But as you go and as you start your ministry and as God allows you to, to, to give the gospel to people and people come to Christ, take people with you as you serve God. 
One of the best things I've done in my years of ministry is I've taken people with me to visits, and I've taken people with me uh, to, to help people when they're dealing with tragedy, and I've taken people with me as we've shared the gospel, and I've taken people with me as I've tried to console the sick, and I've taken people with me, and what that has done is it's helped them to understand a heart for ministry, and that's what happened in the lives of Aquila and Priscilla, so much so that at the end of Acts chapter 18, Apollos comes on the scene at the end of Acts chapter 18. He doesn't totally understand understand what he's saying or, or how to explain Jesus Christ and the resurrection. And the Bible says at the end of Acts chapter 18 that Aquila and Priscilla explained the word of God more perfectly unto Apollos. They were able to help him. Thirdly, look for opportunities to help others grow. Now, while Aquila and Priscilla were in Ephesus, as I mentioned, a man by the name of Apollos who was knowledgeable in the Old Testament and had heard of the baptism of John a baptism of repentance, pointing people to the coming Messiah. This guy, Apollos, came into town, but his understanding was incomplete. And Aquila and Priscilla took advantage of this opportunity to help him know what he needed to know. The Bible says, if you skip down here in verse uh, 26, and he began to speak boldly in the synagogue, whom when Aquila and Priscilla had heard, they took him unto them and expounded unto him the word of God more perfectly. Now, Aquila and Priscilla didn't have a spirit of a Nancy know-it-all. You really don't know what you need to know, and let me tell you a thing or two. That wasn't the heart of Aquila and Priscilla. That's nothing what we get from the text. They were intent on helping to help someone who obviously needed help. Do you know that God doesn't want us to be buckets collecting knowledge? God wants us to be sponges soaking it in and squeezing it out taking it in and giving it out, taking it in and giving it out. I've been in pastoral ministry for a few years, and in that time of 20-some years, I've had the opportunity of taking hundreds of men through what I call discipleship. I'll, I'll start oftentimes with bibliology, helping them to understand they can trust the Bible as the Word of God, and then I'll go into hermeneutics, helping them to interpret the Word of God. I, I come from the idea that if I give a man a fish, he, I'm only going to feed him for a day, but if I teach a man to fish, he's going to feed himself for life, and if I can teach somebody to study the Word of God, they don't have to come to me for answers. They can go right to the Word, their authority in their life for answers anytime they need them. Hundreds of times I've done that with men sitting down over opening up the Word of God, answering their questions, and not only that, helping to speak into their life during those times. And you know what? It's been one of the most enriching times of my life and, and one of the most enriching things that I do. 2 Timothy 2, 2 says, "...in the things which thou hast heard among me, among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also." Pour into someone else so they can pour into someone else. Fourthly, we should never present ourselves to be someone we are not. Which brings me to a question this morning. Have you truly received Jesus Christ as the payment of your sins and the Lord of your life? Are you saved? There's a pastor's forum that I'm a part of, and one of the pastors was lamenting about how sin has become so common in our culture in, in this day and age, and that people no longer feel shame for sin. And I have not responded. I don't like to respond to those things. I feel like you respond to those things, and it always, it, it's not always easy to get tone in an email or a text or anything like that. If I was talking to somebody, I would, I, would, I would have that opportunity. I would speak to somebody. That way they could understand my tone. But I, I really feel like one of the reasons why people no longer feel shame for sin is the reality is there are a whole lot of people in Christian churches that claim to be Christian, but they truly are not. 
They truly are not. And here's why I say that. The Bible gives several marks of who is genuinely and who isn't a Christian. One of those marks is, and Peter says, if so that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious, as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Now, if there are people claiming salvation and they never have any desire at any time in their Christianity to, to the Word of God and to learn and to understand and to know, my inclination is that person probably isn't genuinely born again. If people never feel conviction of the Holy Spirit at any time in their life, the Bible says the Holy Spirit reproves us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, that person probably isn't genuinely born again. And we understand salvation is not of works. I get that. But we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained, Ephesians 2.10, that we should walk in them. And so here were these men in Acts chapter 19. They presented themselves as followers of Jesus. They presented themselves as having the ability to get rid of unclean spirits and they ended up naked and wounded in the process. There is perception, what everybody sees of us, and there is reality. What is the truth? I'm trying to be healthy. I'm trying to eat healthy foods. I'm trying to make sure I'm uh, in a good place, a good trajectory. And I started lifting again and working out probably back September of uh, uh, last year and watching my weight. I've lost about 12, 13 pounds in the process and I, I'm still stuck. I need another 12 more to get gone and I'll feel a little better about myself. But I want to get to a certain body fat percentage. And uh, several years ago, I was coaching wrestling here at uh, the high school behind us. I started their program and, and wrestling with the boys and coaching. I did some coaching and some other things as well with grappling, but my body was down in the fat percentage. My muscle was up, and, and I was feeling like good as far as energy, but every joint in my body would hurt, amen? You know, every joint, you're wrestling, putting somebody in a half Nelson, uh, doing the grappling, putting somebody in an arm bar or, or a leg lock or something like that. Your joints, like, get stressed, and they hurt. And so I didn't want to do that anymore, and I quit, and then I got back into to lifting and and doing things to, to maintain healthy. And so I got to somebody to do a caliper test to find out what my body fat percentage was. And, and um, a caliper test can be uh, accurate to about uh, 3 to um, uh, maybe 10%. So it can be off between 3 and 10%. Now, if somebody's really good, they're going to get it on within 1% generally. Now, you, grab, you go to the gym and they have these things that measure your body fat and you grab a hold of them, you stand on a scale thing and they'll tell you your body fat percentage and, uh, um, and you get the measurement and, and so there's another test, it's called the DEXA test. And literally you lay down on a table and it's like they give you an MRI and they scan your body and it picks up all of your lean body tissue, your bone mass and your fat in pounds. So last week, I went to get a DEXA test. I thought I was on a good track. I thought I was doing really well. Uh, my uh, uh, test had said I was at 17% body fat, uh, and I thought, okay, I want to get to 12, and so I'm doing really well. And, and I got on this table, and he, he put me on the screen, and they had highlighted areas in green that was lean body muscle, and then they had highlighted areas in red that were fat. <laughs> What a humbling experience. <laughs> it looked like Christmas, eh? Green India. <laughs> Thankfully, there was more green than there was red, but there was way too much red, in my opinion. And then it talks about, like, how much lean body muscle you have per arm. Like, I have nine pounds of lean body muscle in my arm. This is my right arm. Only 8.2 pounds of lean body muscle in my left arm. Well, I am right-handed. He said, did you have an injury? I said, how'd you know? I hurt my, my, my left hand. I sprained my wrist at least in a motorcycle uh, fall or whatever. And he said, well, that's why. You, you're compensating with 
with your right hand making up for your left hand and then he did that all throughout my body and I went away I was I was I went there excited my perception was X but the reality was Y and you know what every one of us are like that and at times we present ourselves to be someone we really are not and you know what the Bible says about that? It says, Whoso boasteth himself of a false gift is like clouds of wind without rain. Don't propose to be someone you are not. Next, when the gospel takes root and Christianity, oh, excuse me, when the gospel takes root and Christians glorify God, they repent of sinful deeds and ways. Here's what happens in Acts chapter 19. And this was known to all the Jews and Greeks dwelling at Ephesus. And fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. And many that believed came and confessed and showed their deeds. And many of them also which used curious arts brought their books together and burned them before all men. And they counted the price of them and found it 50 pieces of silver. So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. You see, again, the gospel is transformative in nature. No one that receives it ever stays the same. No one that receives it ever stays the same. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that we instantly drop all sinful behaviors and habits the moment we're saved, but the gospel always changes us. And here in our text, uh, it changed the Ephesians. They gave up some things. They gave up their books of necromancy. They gave up their sinful memorabilia. They gave up their sinful ways. They changed. They gave up some things. They laid down some things. They understood that if they were going to run the Christian weight, there were some sins and there were some weights that were going to weigh them down and keep them from running well. Which brings me to a question. What do we need to lay down? What do we need to give up? Fellas, ladies, is it a problem with pornography? Is it a problem with alcohol? Maybe you're a functioning addict. I'm not throwing stones this morning. But what do we need to lay down? Before I got saved, I went to a church that, while I was going there before salvation, they had a revival. And I didn't know what a revival was. But during the revival meeting, it looked like people were visibly, they were visibly shaken. They were visibly apprehended that God was visibly doing something in their lives. The second night of the revival, there was a man that knew there were some things he needed to give up. And the word revive or revival means to get to where you're supposed to be. And this man uh, was convicted by the Holy Spirit that he needed to lay down his alcohol. He had a problem with alcohol. And so literally, old-fashioned, he brought his alcohol to the church in boxes. And, and there were a couple boxes full of alcohol. And I was just a teenager, teenager at the time, but I knew alcohol was very expensive. Literally hundreds, if not thousands of dollars of alcohol brought to the church, literally walked it down the center of the aisle. And, and as, as church was starting, he laid it down, he got down on his face, and he started praying and crying. And I wasn't saved. I didn't know what salvation was. I, I, I didn't know what all that was about, but I thought, something's going on here. There's liquor at the front of the church and somebody's crying about it. <laughs> Another guy, the next day, brought a couple boxes of pornographic magazines. And he had them covered, of course, but he laid them at the altar and he too came and was crying. 
And all that week, people did that all night long. The deacons, after the service, uh, took the alcohol that one night, and they went to the kitchen, and they, they all had a celebratory dump out. Well, I dumped it down their guzzards. No, I'm just kidding. They didn't, they, didn't, they didn't drink it. They dumped it down the drain. They burned some books and some magazines. They had a burn pile at this church's country. Something was taking place. But you see, that's what the gospel does. The gospel changes us. It changes us. Lastly, the gospel is powerful enough to change the culture of our day. As you look in Acts chapter 19, Demetrius comes up. He calls the, the union local 666 together of... Uh, uh, temple worshiping idols together. Those guys come together. They make their wealth through that. Verse 26, moreover you see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands, so that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised and her magnificence should be destroyed whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. They were upset because the Christians were, uh, they were taken away from their pocketbook. They were upset that now the Christianity was affecting the culture. And as a result of the Christianity affecting the culture, people were no longer going to the temple of Diana. They weren't buying the silver trinkets. And, and so they were upset. And you, so, you see, what Christianity did was it literally changed the culture. But here's what we want to do. We don't want the message of our Christianity, the message of Jesus Christ, to change the culture. We want the morals of our Christianity to change our culture. We want what we believe about the family, what we believe about politics, what we believe about uh, all of those things to change the culture. And what we need to understand is those things don't necessarily change the culture. What changes the culture is people getting the gospel, and people getting saved. And when people get the gospel and they get saved, then their culture changes and then they change the culture. But many of us are stuck wanting to die on that hill. And we don't understand that the natural man receiveth not the things of God, their foolishness unto them. And we're trying to reason with unsaved people with using biblical means. And unless somebody's regenerated and, uh, and understands the gospel and has already been saved, they're never going to understand the things that the way we understand things. So in closing this morning, I asked several things. Are we looking for opportunities to take others with us as we serve God? Are we looking for opportunities to help others grow? Are we pretending to be something we are not? What are some things that we need to let go of? And do we really understand the power and nature of the gospel? Let's all pray this morning.